Saver 2011. Coverage by Craft Beer Radio from Friday, June 3rd. Saver Educational Salon with Jim Cook and Sam Calagione. They discuss the development of Saver flowers. Well, uh, good evening, everybody. We got uh, quite a crowd in here. Excited to see everybody here at uh, Saver 2011. Uh, my name is Ray Daniels. I'm the host uh, for the uh, uh, salons uh, in this room tonight. Uh, I am the founder and director of the Cicerone Certification Program. We're a beer sommelier uh, certification program. Um, I'm proud to say that uh, the people in both of these gentlemen's organizations are participating, so I'm particularly proud to be here introducing them tonight. Uh, as you probably know, Saver and these salons are put on by the Brewers Association. The Brewers Association is the uh, trade association for small and independent brewer, craft brewers uh, in the United States. And uh, they are the folks who put on the Great American Beer Festival in uh, Denver every year. Been doing that for uh, more than 30 years now. And uh, uh, also uh, the folks who run uh, this program and uh, bring you uh, craftbeer.com, which is uh, your one-stop shop for all that is important and great about craft beer these days, or at least a starting point. Um, by the way, one of the things we're going to be doing tonight is uh, tape recording uh, these, uh, this session, and uh, the craftbeerradio.com uh, will be playing those back later uh, as podcasts. Uh, so if, uh, when it comes time for questions, and when you have a question, get your hand up, and I will run over uh, and bring you this very microphone that is in my hand at this moment, and I will hand it off to you uh, so that we can make sure uh, everyone can hear your question, both in the room and uh, those who are listening to the podcast at some future date. Um, let's see. In addition to all that, I'd like to tell you a little bit about who the sponsors are of uh, Saver this year. Uh, and as you can imagine, any undertaking uh, of uh, this size and of this wonderfulness uh, takes uh, a few folks to do. They're all great names in, in the beer business, and I want to tell you a little bit about who they are. Uh, Reyes Beverage Group, uh, Brewery Omegang, the Dogfish Head Craft Brewery, Sam's organization, uh, Samuel Adams, Jim's organization, uh, craftbeer.com, Allagash Brewing Company, the Brooklyn Brewery, Flying Dog Ales, Full Sail Brewing Company, New Belgium Brewing Company, Rogue Ales, Saranac, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, Victory Brewing Company, uh, the fine folks at Crosby and Baker, suppliers of uh, brewing uh, ingredients, uh, Draft Magazine, GreatBrewers.com, Oak Beverages, Inc., and Spielgau. Am I saying that right? Spiegelau. Spiegelau, thank you, Jim. Um, uh, the uh, glassware makers. Um, so, those are the, the great sponsors here. Um, so, we have got two of uh, the rock stars of the craft beer business, uh, true titans of uh, craft brewing in the United States, um, uh, with us uh, tonight. Uh, let's see. I'll start with Jim, because I, I remember... I think I had Jim's beer before I had Sam's beer. Sorry. Jim's, Jim, Jim's been around longer. <laughs> I actually had my first Sam Adams here in this town. Really? Yeah. It was, it was uh, an, an epiphany beer for me uh, in a hotel lobby. I was a you know, corporate uh, marketing guy. Sat down and said, Sam Adams, what the heck's that? American beer. Well, American beer I've never heard of? Bring me one of those. Thank you. And uh, the world's never been the same. <laughs> 
So uh, Jim Cook is the uh, founder and brewmaster of the Samuel Adams uh, Brewing Company, Boston Beer Company, the makers of Samuel Adams. And uh, he has inspired many who are uh, out there tonight uh, pouring great beer for you. So it's great to have him here. Um, next to him is uh, a young man who was uh, no doubt inspired in part by what Jim was doing and what others were doing. A uh, guy who uh, got his start uh, just a little bit later, uh, but uh, didn't uh, take too long to make his mark on the craft brewing world. Uh, the Dogfish Head Craft Brewery, uh, coming from uh, what some would think is far away Rehoboth, uh, Delaware, uh, has uh, made quite a mark on the world. Uh, Sam uh, is no stranger to uh, this side of the camera lens, both still and moving, and uh, as many of you know, in his recent uh, television appearances uh, and, uh, and frequent appearances in the media, uh, 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 Sam has been an incredible spokesperson for the industry, though, as well. Uh, certainly, he talks about uh, Dogfish Head, uh, but he's a great uh, supporter and promoter of the industry, and uh, that's one of the reasons it's great to have him here tonight as well. Uh, so, uh, Sam Calajon, the uh, founder and uh, brewmaster of... And with that, I'm going to shut up, sit down, and get out of the way. When you have a question, raise your hand, and I'll bring you a microphone. Thank you, Ray. And I don't know how many folks are familiar with uh, Ray's Cicerone uh, program, but there's a reason that we know a pretty, pretty good amount of, about beer, Jim and I, but we both independently chose to invite Ray in and uh, have him bring his knowledge into our world to teach our coworkers about selling beer and appreciating beer and education on beer. So if you haven't checked out the Cicerone uh, program, did you do it with your sales folks, or how did you guys do it? We had 300 people take it. Wow. Did you take Six it? Six of them. No, it's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> Six of them what? What happened with Six you? didn't pass. Six. 294 are, did. Are they still with the company, the Six? Yeah, yeah, they get another shot. They get one? Yeah. <laughs> but it's just wonderful that... Ray has invented a program that is one more aspect of the respect and dignity that wine has always been accorded and is now brought to beer. Because I think uh, fundamental to both of our approaches to beer is that beer is uh, one of the great beverages of the world. And uh, the essence of this event is the belief that if you're going to have good food, good beer deserves a place at the table. And Ray's program is one more aspect of bringing to beer the respect and the dignity and the nobility that it deserves as a beverage. So thanks, Ray. Thank you, Ray. So to, to to the idea of dignity, beer, food all belonging in uh, one sentence. We, Jim and I uh, spent, uh, have spent a lot of time together in our roles in the Brewers Association on the Board of Directors. Very proud of everything, you know, Nancy, Bob, everyone at, at the staff level as we've watched events grow and seeing the Great American Beer Festival become the quintessential American Beer Festival has been wonderful. But frankly, we're a couple East Coast guys. <laughs> and, and our breweries have always promoted our beer in the context of food, 
and we really thought it'd be wonderful if there was an opportunity to have a festival on the East Coast that was all about putting beer and food together. So we really championed the uh, saver moving forward, and then the staff did carry the, the water and made this event happen. But our two breweries, from the origins of Saver, were, were, were sponsors. So it was really heartwarming after in the middle of a board meeting when Bob Pease came up to us uh, and said, hey, me and Nancy, Nancy, the woman who runs events uh, for BA, Nancy and I were talking, we think it would be wonderful if you guys brewed uh, the, uh, the first inaugural Saver collaborative beer together, right? Yeah, and I mean, part of being a brewer is uh, to create a gift. And, uh, you know, the fest, uh, Saver had sold out. There was no issue of, you know, doing anything with the tick, more tickets or anything like that. And to me, that was one of the really cool parts of this is, you know, you all bought your tickets not knowing that we were going to give you a gift. And that gift, everyone who comes here will get a bottle of this unique beer. Uh, and beyond that, no one will ever get it again. This is the only place, the only time that this beer will be enjoyed uh, except for what you take home and what you make of the beer. So it is our gift. We hope you enjoy it. We're going to talk about it. And I, I think it's fair to say that you know, both Sam and I are extremely appreciative of all of you, because we just make the beer. If nobody drank the beer, uh, it would be like uh, theater in the dark. Pointless. So uh, for us, we want to thank you for coming here and for enjoying our beer. And I guess we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit and try to... And I'd really be very interested, since this is the first time... and. The only time this beer is served in public, I would actually be interested in, you know, getting descriptors and uh, thoughts and reactions, but mostly just flavor descriptors as you taste it. But maybe we can tell you about uh, the beer's creation, and that'll add a little bit of uh, depth and complexity to the experience for you. They, they've given us a whole hour, and we casually have decided, uh, voted of two that we'll, we'd like to talk for maybe 30 or 40 minutes and then just start conversing with you about the beer and, uh, you know, the, the savor and anything we want to get into for craft beer. But mostly we would love your feedback because this is, as Jim said, a very ephemeral uh, experience with this beer because we're only doing it once. Because I'll tell you what, this ain't scalable in terms of, like, <laughs> you know, it's like uh, we can't make, this one, up. We can't make <laughs> this one up on volume. We'll make it up on volume, right? No. <laughs> no. How'd you like to make... Well, one of the things that Sam and his team did to make this beer uh, is, you know, it's a typical dogfish head, completely out-of-the-box approach to brewing. And uh, as we began this idea, uh, Sam approached it with, uh, an originality and an inventiveness that certainly has characterized his brewery from 1996. Yeah. Because uh, you make, I mean, you start with four basic ingredients of beer. Uh, and we had just done a collaboration. Our, the only other collaboration we've ever done 
It was done with the oldest brewery in the world, thousand-year-old brewery um, in Germany. It's on a hill outside of Munich. It's called Weinstefan. It is arguably the most important brewery in the old world because not only is it the oldest brewery in the world, it is the German Brewing University. Um, it's a brewery and an entire university and faculty, so it's the uh, highest concentration of technical knowledge in the world, and they adhere to their purity law, water, yeast, malt, and hops. That's all you can use, and we created a new style of beer with them within that purity law, and people are all, and American brewers have greatly expanded uh, on that original purity law, and done different, added different ingredients, played with the malt, the hops, the yeast. The one constant that every brewer has always used to make his or her beer has been water. This guy is like, well, why don't we mess with that? <laughs> huh? I mean, I had a little brain damage, but uh, they uh, created almost a thousand gallons of rose water to begin the brewing process with, with the theme of flowers. So, I mean, God love them. Making a thousand gallons of rose water uh, if, with a still yeah. is not easy, but that uh, was the beginning ingredient of this beer. It wasn't made with water. No, yeah, I mean, that was a, a fun... As we came into this, and there are so many wonderful collaborations, a number of the great breweries on that floor have done some beautiful collaborations. And when we came in and decided to do this, we said, yep, we're up, we're up to this, let's do this together, but let's do something that's never been done before. And, you know, just a spice du jour off of a, a shelf, throw it blindly into a beer, that's not going to do it. Let's, let's rethink this and, and bring a lot of context and history into this uh, process. Uh, because I think our two breweries really pride ourselves on pushing the envelope, but also recognizing very long traditions, uh, some of which might predate the Reinheitsgebot. And so the initial idea was, uh, let's, let's do this really, really old school and very analog, and, and let's capture the iterative process of coming up with this recipe uh, and share that as the drinking experience. So we'll tell you our story tonight, but when you go home, the, the beautiful bottle that Boston Beer really put together for this also includes a neck hanger that has a series of old old snail mail letters that Jim and I wrote back and forth to each other over the course of about half a year iteratively uh, moving this recipe forward. So while we'll get to the, the chapter on, on Rosewater, you know, the first chapter of this was basically us saying, let's do this, and then Jim coming back and saying, let's do this, and I, I got an idea for, for a starting point, and then let's go wherever we go. And the idea is if we're going to do something really outside the box, let's do something kind of inside the original barrel, which is, you know, Triple Bock, uh, which is a beer that they started doing in bourbon barrels around 93. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, I believe, the first wood-aged American craft beer. So he very kindly removed the 18-year-old liquid from that barrel and freed it up for this experience, right? Yeah. That's the cellar master pissed off about what you did with that barrel. No, it's my ex <laughs> My ex-wife. Oh, shit. <laughs> Ooh. I pushed the wrong button. I meant to push the one that said ignore. <laughs> She's going to be pissed. Oh, no. Okay, well, tell us about the barrel one. All right. 
<laughs> Moving along. Um, yeah, well, um, Barrel One was in some ways a transition point, an inflection point. Oh, she's mad now. That's why I got rid of her. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, Barrel One to me was sort of an inflection point with craft brewing because um, when I started got in 1984, craft brewing and its creative impulse was largely driven by bringing old world styles of beer and recreating them in the United States, whether they were, you know, uh, porters, stouts, ESBs, pale ales, classic lagers. That was basically the way that beers uh, were created in the U.S. in the craft brewing movement was finding things that had been done in the old world, bringing them to the U.S. And I got a little, I mean, it became sort of not that challenging, almost uh, tedious and not that creative. And I had the sort of an epiphany, which was that every style of beer, whether it was, you know, a porter or a stout or whatever, a pale ale, um, they were all uh, invented by some human being. And, uh, and created from some brewer's uh, own, you know, imagination and heart. And uh, I guess the epiphany was that every great beer that can be made has not yet been made. That there are great beers out there that nobody's ever made. And let's move American craft brewing away from just, you know, replicating the old world styles and doing something way more American, which was innovating, doing something that had never been done before. And, and uh, at that point, nobody had ever made a beer over f about 14% alcohol. This Sammy Claus, it was the strongest beer in the world. Nobody had ever gotten over 14%. It was kind of assumed that's sort of a sound barrier for beer. And... I knew we could go further than that. I wasn't quite sure how, but it was kind of a Starship Enterprise approach to beer. Let's uh, go, you know, know where uh, no one's gone before and see what we discover, because there's going to be some weird shit out there. And, <laughs> yeah, we want to see it. Um, so that was the original uh, impetus and inflection point for Triplebach. Let's create new styles of beer that have never existed before. And it, uh, we got it to about 18% alcohol. It was uh, the strongest beer in the world at that point. Um, and we discovered a lot of things, including that when you get the ethanol that high, it begins to have a sort of ferocious attack on the palate, which is not that pleasant. And so I was trying to figure out, well, how do I deal with that? And uh, I realized, well, I, I don't have to figure this out. A bunch of, you know, ignorant backwoodsmen at the edge of civilization uh, figured this out 200 years ago in Bourbon County, Kentucky. Uh, they took their moonshine, they took oak barrels, they charred the inside of them, 
uh, and uh, that charred wood smoothed out the ethanol in the beer. And so we, uh, we call bluegrass cooperage. They're the people that dispose of these barrels because uh, they can only be used once. That's uh, the law in the U.S. The scotch makers buy some of them, and the rest of them get cut up as planters and sold at Home Depot. So we got a whole bunch of them from bluegrass cooperage. We filled them. They smoothed out and mellowed uh, this 36-proof beer, and uh, we kept them. And one of the blending elements for uh, Utopias, our, our, uh, the sort of the evolution of this extreme beer, we still use some of that original uh, triple bock, which is now 18 years old. And we had barrel one, uh, you know, the primal barrel that uh, began this uh, technique that American brewers have now pioneered of using used spirit and wine barrels to age their beer. So we took barrel one and, uh, you know, gave it a higher purpose. We removed the triple bock from it that had been sitting there for 18 years, and uh, we used it for uh, the infusion of flowers. We basically jammed it full of lavender and jasmine and hibiscus, and then we introduced this uh, liquid that is the other end of uh, the more sort of uh, Starship Enterprise end, uh, this 15% clear malt liquid that we make in an ion separator uh, at our brewery uh, that takes a whole bunch of stuff out of it. I Sweetest Batman utility belt <laughs> of like tools that he can whip out. And, uh, this was a one of them. this was a tool. You're right. Never thought about it that way, but <laughs> it, it was a tool. So uh, we got some uh, off. We got some liquid off the ion separator. Uh, put it in uh, barrel one, and basically began to tincture flowers uh, and. Again, it's a very traditional, historic kind of thing that is quite common in, in northern Italy, you know, where uh, each region, even each village, has its own aperitif that is generated by uh, steeping herbs, flowers, other botanicals in a, uh, basically a raw brandy. So we steep the flowers in that, and that's w one of the ways out of several that we got flowers into this beer because Sam's concept was flowers and we went with it. And, and so with, with that, as, it was neat because our teams were kind of, as, as these letters were going back and forth at a snail's pace, my wife told me, this is the only time you've paid attention to the mail coming into this house in the last <laughs> 10 years, you know, because I was waiting for the next letter and seeing where we were going to go next. So it was neat because we were writing these letters. In the meantime, a letter would come in, and then we would, you know, share what we learned from that letter from each other with our coworkers, and then they got to work at doing so what they're so good at, which is bringing crazy ideas from ideas into something in a bottle. Um, and every every booth out there where you see a brewer, you're like, wow, I, I would like to meet that guy and shake that hand. Remember that you're high fiving or shaking that guy's hands 
in, really in, in acknowledgement of all the people at that person's company who are really good at their jobs. So I was thinking, as, as far as making this iterative, it'd be really neat to invite some of the folks up that really did carry the water in moving this, uh, this, this recipe forward on some of the more challenging physical uh, parts of the, the recipe. So John, and Allison, and Andrew, can you guys come up? And we need their mic, Ray, if we can give them that. Mike. Thank you, Ray. Someone's carrying it. So this is the only so, this is the only moment that dogfish heads bigger than plastic. Uh, <laughs> I went two. I went two of my yeah, and what is it, the number 17th most el- eligible bachelor? Woo! So I think it'd be neat. But I think we need a few. Welcomes any lingerie that you want to pass forward. Except for you guys. So at any rate, we're, we're, coming, we're, we're talking about this story from the, the, high, the, from the level of, of a bunch of letters going forth, back and forth. Give us a little debriefing of actually, okay, replacing water. Yeah, debriefing. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, let's do rose water and what that meant from us. And then I'd love to hear on you on the tincture yeah. world. And... Well, I, I think really the, the hardest part of it all started with Allison. Allison here is our uh, head distiller at Dogfish Head. She really deals with just about everything we do as far as spirits. And we lean... <laughs> we lean incredibly heavily upon uh, Allison to make this kind of wacky dream in the sky a reality. And w- when we first sat down and we talked about it, we said, okay, hey, how are we going to make rose water that replaces all of the brewing liquor in beer? And she said, I don't think you are. (laughs) Come on. You know Frankenstill can do it, which is the name she gave to our aptly put together still. Homemade pot still. Talk about the woods. (laughs) So I I think it's really most prudent for Allison to talk a little bit about really what was the heart and soul of this. I mean, we, we did a lot of things here and there, but Allison spent weeks and weeks and weeks just every day brewing rose water to turn into beer. So 30 barrels of beer. It was phenomenal. Thousand gallons of rose water. <laughs> Not much of a public speaker, but... Um... It was kind of interesting because I get to work with liquor all the time. So as to not go from, I guess, working nine to five and coming out kind of loopy, doing rose water was actually pretty fun because it gave me that girly and introspective, I guess, of uh, distilling. So uh, just, I don't know what much to say, but it was just so much fun just to do it and uh, just smell the, uh, the aroma that was coming out of the condenser. It was just wonderful. Wonderful. Every single day, how you had to deal with this. I mean, we had oh, yeah. fresh rose petals from South America coming oh, yeah. in, and dried rose petals. Men were giving me roses finally. <laughs> 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 it was awesome. <laughs> no, but it was really nice because.
because just the color of the rose petals that was going into the still, um, the dried roses, just the aroma, and everybody coming up, even while we were open, just smelled the aroma. And it wasn't so that heavy liquor, it was now that more really beautiful, floral, almost angelic kind of atmosphere. I really enjoyed it. I really had a great time. So you do want to do giant volumes of this? No. <laughs> no. It, was, it was good, but not that great. <laughs> and then, John, give us a, a quick overview of getting this liquid to Boston. So, it, Allison's kind of understating the amount of hours that went into this in the process. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, but I think there was times when she was pretty much ready to kill me. Um, I did bring you flowers though, so we made up a lot. Um, but uh, I think it, all in all, you spent uh, ten to twelve days um, taking these raw flowers, and we spent several days doing small, small uh, distilling experiments, trying to figure out how much raw, um, fresh rose petals we wanted, what different types of fresh rose petals we wanted, how much dried rose petals we wanted and what different types and we finally came to this recipe and we were we were super psyched on it. we were like okay we've got this recipe it wasn't so hard to come up with this you know experimental batch now let's brew it real and so we took it and we you know amped it up and we made these full size batches and then it turned out it's still just drip 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 out the still <laughs> she spent Hours there just watching it. And I would come up and look at it and I'm like, okay, so where are we at? We we had a barrel yet? And she's like, we're at three gallons. <laughs> it's like visual Chinese water torture. <laughs> it was phenomenal and terrible at the same time. But we ended up getting through it and really it it was it was a big group effort between not only Allison and myself, but also we had a couple of brewers who were here tonight. And fortunately, they don't get a whole lot of nights off to do fun stuff. So right now, they're getting a night off to go and taste some uh, some beers and eat some phenomenal food. But they also complemented that with a rose tea that we made in the brew house. And then what we really needed to do to ship it up there is we needed to make a rose tea. Because unlike a lot of the distillates that Allison makes, this is not intrinsically safe. It's not intrinsically sterile like all these high alcohols. This is just straight water. And so we made it hot. We got it into the kegs hot. But we still had to make sure before we shipped it out there that we sterilized this whole rose water solution before we sent it up. So right before we were ready to send it up, in fact both times the day or two days before we sent it up, we brought all these kegs out of the brew pub, which was funny in and of itself, down to the main brewery in Milton, and we brewed uh, rose tea down there. And we took that tea and we made it as hot as we could and flushed it out of the lines straight into the same tank that we pushed all these kegs into as hot as we could. So it was all sterile. Once it got all sterile, then we did everything we could to cool it down as soon as we could. And so we got it cool, and then these guys were kind enough to ship us down these giant containers. And what were they? Ten thousand or a, a thousand gallons a piece? No, uh, yeah, they were uh, uh, ten barrels each. So they were about uh, 
330 gallons-ish, something like that. Um, so they set up all these totes, and then we're just like, oh, wow. Um, where do I keep that for the next day before? Because you can't just leave it in the brewery uh, floor. It's rose water. We don't want it to, uh, you know, grow anything or anything like that. So, all right, well, I guess we could jam it in the back cooler somewhere. And you're thinking to yourself, well, where am I going to put all the beer? So had to jostle everything around, and it was a big, it, it was a little bit of a fight. But uh, we got everything in there. And then the second part was, all right, now that we have it there, how do we get it to use for brewing water. All right, so we had to drain our hot water tank, find a way to fill that thing back up from these totes so it wasn't, uh, you know, the, just the night before we had to drain the hot water tank and then come back and go, all right, let's fill this thing back up. We want to heat it up, but we don't want to heat it up too hot so all the volatile um, nice aromas to it, they don't blow off or anything like that. So we had to take a guess and say, all right, well, what's the hottest we're going to need water for, so it's about 170 degrees, we'll heat it up to about 173 and hope for the best, you know, one of those things. And then while uh, we were heating it, we were in the room trying the tinctures that yeah. you guys ended up sending to us. Yeah. Right after you guys tried. Yeah, so oh, finding... Uh, Tell us about the ones that didn't make it. Um, well, I tried to forget right. some of those ones. Uh, oh, yeah. We, we tried... Not all flowers are good. No, not a, definitely all flowers are not equal. Um, some are better than others. We tried everything from, you know, like cool sounding names like the Black Malva. That was, it sounded so cool. It had a nice purple color to it. Uh, it extracted like this really neat uh, color and it was just so dark and nice, but the flavor and aroma just wasn't there. It was like a, almost like an old folks home or something like that. It just, it, it wasn't. It wasn't pleasant. You're thinking to yourself, do I want this in a beer? Uh, no. Let's see what else is there. I mean, we went through probably 15 to 20 different flowers just to come up with the three that we thought worked the best, being jasmine, hibiscus, and uh, lavender. Um, it was not the most pleasant experience trying to lay all these out in front of you and go, oh, man, some of these just don't smell great, but do they taste okay? Well, eh, all right, better taste them and see what happens. You know, one of those things. But uh, it all worked out. It was a lot, a lot of fun. Uh, it was a really cool experience doing that. I've never actually had the opportunity to make a flower tea before or a flower tincture. Um, so it was really cool. And then once we honed in on the three that we liked the best, the ratios of each one going into each other, you know, into the beer as well, that was another experiment. You know, it was one higher than the other, like the hibiscus, it came through a nice dark red, had a nice little sour note to it, uh, too much lavender, and it smelled like a potpourri shop, you know, <laughs> Bed Bath & Beyond or something like that, so you had to work on the levels with that. The jasmine also had the same things, it was like a, almost like a straw character if you added too much, but you wanted the delicate floral notes of it, so it was just this big, almost like a mad scientist blend. Uh, we had the, you know, the graduated cylinders out just sort of it was like chemistry class all over again you know blending everything together but uh, we finally came up with the right ratio sent it down to these guys see if they liked it uh, which they did and then we had to get it in the beer so that was another fun experience um, we did so thank you guys remember as these three out here are working with Jim and I to move our companies forward there's hundreds of people behind it, you know, representing the three or four people behind each of those booths. 
for amazing at the job. And thank you guys for what you brought into this beer. Um, I hope you're as proud of as, as we are. Thank you. For a change. <laughs> Any other beer? If there's beer back there. If there's more beer, actually, can we pour what's left in the room for folks that have been waiting for it? <laughs> we are. Right? Now nah, we'll tear gas everybody. Uh, I hope you're enjoying. I just uh, Andrew was talking. Um, I learned some, something from making this beer. Uh, because, you know, I've always thought about flowers as, you know, the floral aromatics of them, all those perfume-like notes. Um, and one of the things that I thought was very interesting in this beer is that uh, tincturing the flowers gave us not only uh, those floral aromatics, but uh, a bunch of uh, polyphenols and tannins, which... Uh, this beer is about 10% ABV, so it's ferment and it's fermented quite dry. Uh, with, uh, to me, the end result that you get a finish that has a lot of uh, the the characteristics, the good characteristics. And I'm not a big wine guy, and I think wine is way overrated. One of the uh, nice things. Thank you. I think that's true, but I have a good friend who was the, num the fourth master of wine in the United States and has a really good palate, uh, and he told me, he said, Jim, you know, at the end of the day, red wine tastes like red wine, and white wine tastes like white wine, and they're not that different, and we have to invent all these imaginary words to describe them. So with bourbons, we can actually create those flavors. Um, what I like about the finish in this beer that came out of the flowers is not uh, the aromatics, but it has, because it's fermented quite dry, you get uh, a dry finish that is a low pH, so slightly acidic, and uh, a complex set of tannins and polyphenols. So it finishes very dry, acidic, clean, astring slightly astringent, and it makes you want to have another sip. So that's, you know, was my uh, experience. When it was done, that surprised me. And it's something that we got uh, out of the flowers that I wasn't expecting, those, those tannins and polyphenols that gave you that slightly astringent finish that makes you want more. And, and we were sending back all the different tinctures, and Andrew and John, we were all sitting down every week and trying the different combinations and ratios. Our, our, our confidence was we could make... The, the flowers shine through. Our fear was people would take one sip and say, yep, that's got a whole lot of flowers. I'm glad I tried that and put that glass down. And actually, as Jim's saying, to do this with all these different ratios, all different tests, and actually come forward with something you wanted a second sip of, for me was the, the, the amazing moment of this group. So other than, because we'd love to start chatting with you, hear what you think of the beer, other than to say, uh, you know, the, when you get your 750 mil bottle of this and bring it home, 
uh, email our, our respective sites. Let us know how the spirit is evolving. It's 10%. Do us the favor of enjoying A with someone you love, someone you want to bring flowers to, and do it over some food. Because at the end of the day, that was the context as we move this recipe forward is how will this work with food and let's celebrate beer and food because that's what we're here tonight to do. And what's nice is we can sit up here and talk about this stuff with you guys and we know you appreciate it, but when's the last time you saw a big brewery do an ad that had to do with how their beer works with food? It might be how it works with awesome fast cars or super hot chicks or talking, talking animals. But it's never about how it works with food. And you know why? Because light lager is great after a hot commute or mowing lawn, and I'll drink those beers after that. I'm not a beer snob, but it ain't great with food. And craft beer is great with food. And that's what we're celebrating in the room. So I, I, that's my one question. So where's our first question? Right over here. So, how did you preserve the, the, the flower nose? What additives did you use after the, the fermentation process to really bring that Same back? Same <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I figured it had to be one of the utilities on the Batman belt, and, you know, it's just uh, <clears throat> something that preserves that throughout the process. One of the early samples of the rose water that John left on my desk is still on my desk, and it looks like it's fucking sea monkeys. <laughs> there's, so, there's so much growing in it. So it was a very delicate thing, and it all pretty much happened in Boston. We don't know. We, I mean, you got to remember, this, nobody's ever done this before. We don't know what it, it's going to do over time. But you didn't end up with a, with a test batch that basically had not the nose you expected from what you started with. Well, and you said, well, we're going to need to do something afterwards. We've got these tinctures. We've got... You know, this we can try. I mean, I get a lot of honey out of it, so... A lot of people say that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, was there, you know... There is a little bit of honey in it. It is a heather honey that we gather in Scotland. Uh, and I don't know if Jen is here. Uh, maybe she's out there. Uh, she's, she went to Scotland, got stung by about 30 different of those nasty Scottish bees, but brought back a heather honey. That is in here, and I find that very interesting because, you know, essentially with honey, all the sugars are gone. The yeast will go through the fructose, the glucose, the levulose, all the sugars that bees make are very simple and very accessible uh, to yeast. What's left in it is some of those uh, floral notes because our little friends, the bees, are quite efficient gatherers of floral aromatics. And they were one of the elements as well. So it's, it's, I love having, you know, you guys talk to us about the flavor. Because, you know, this is the first time we've really tasted it. So uh, it's nice to be among friends. And there's also a syrup that I, I found in, uh, in uh, Italy that has it's a, a rose water and, and lemon syrup that I, I think contributes some of that as well. Yeah. Um, in the body, not the aroma. Yep. Question over here. The beer, it's, it's delicious and complicated. I get a little bit of peppermint. I don't know if anybody else gets that. There was one flower that was a little minty. 
Yeah, a little, would you say, I mean, to me, I get a little uh, eucalyptus more yeah, than peppermint. Yeah, yeah, that's a better word for it. Um, so I have a question for the beginner segment, which is, what's a tincture? What's tincture? Yeah. Oh, it's uh, just a solution that contains a, a solvent. Uh, in this case, wa water and alcohol. It's a way of uh, extracting some... Uh, from a botanical, an herbal, a floral, uh, you know, substance, the essence of it. Who's next with a question? I saw this hand up here first, so I'm going to run up here. Just real quick, I saw your episode on the Egyptian fear. Where did you come up with the idea of rose water? Um, really, it was after... You know, we talked to Jim, and it was after that conversation where we're like, yep, we're up from this challenge, but if we do this, let's do stuff that hasn't happened before. And for our brewery, our, the whole context of Dogfish starting up, Jim was talking earlier about how basically, you know, a lot of, of course, we, we look to our recent history, and, and the craft brew movement started with these gorgeous and local and fresh and unpasteurized gem inflections towards old, old uh, world brewing styles, but you know, for us, when we opened, we tried to brew not to styles, and we took a lot of crap for that in the mid-90s, and they're like, oh, there's three weirdos and heretics, and that got us, <laughs> that got us researching that long before the Ryan Heights, but long before one beer thing dominated, every culture was brewing with these exotic ingredients, and that's the longer tradition that we, you know, believe in at Dogfish Head, but I, so I thought, and we said, let's not just put, like, wave our hand over an herb shelf or a fruit shelf and plunk something in there. So I was like, I don't want to think about an herb or a spice. I want to think about something germane to beer in a way that hasn't uh, been thought of before. And, it, you know, water is the most voluminous, and you can say that word right. Voluminous. Voluminous ingredient beer. And yet I graduated from college. <laughs> delicious. Thank you so much for brewing it. Um, going back to the food portion, what foods have you found have paired really well with this so far? This is the first time we have tasted this in public. Really? So you haven't tried any foods for it? Three hours ago, we, we got to try an RFP as a little precursor tonight. So we're looking forward to the adventure, and it's something that we won't know any better than you. When you take your bottle, email our companies and let us know what works well when you, when you drink it. Great question. Uh, just a question about the uh, how much of the of the uh, flowers uh, uh, were used as a hop uh, quality, or what hops were used? A lot of times in uh, American IPAs or double IPAs, the hops have a very floral quality, and so just wondering how much using actual flowers did that take the place of of hops, and if 
hops were used, what hops did you use? It's a good question. I forgot about that part of the story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, this, this does use uh, a hop that contributes significant floral elements to it. Um, it is an experimental hop. Um, it's a hop that's never been used in a commercial beer. It has no name. Um, its only designation is 369. And it's a hop that we uh, sampled from our hop dealer uh, last fall. And I loved it. And I, and I was looking for something to do with it because it was intensely floral and slightly fruity and didn't uh, give me... Uh, characteristics that I'd had in any other hop. So uh, we called our hop dealer and said, can you get us uh, 35 pounds of this because we want to brew uh, a special beer with it. So this is the first beer ever made. It'll have a name. God knows what it's going to be. The marketing people figured that out. But it's Hop 369. And this is the first beer that commercial beer that's ever been made with it. I'm recommending the name is Old People's Home. <laughs> <laughs> But it's beautiful, and of course the subtext that we all work with flowers as brewers didn't go by us when we were thinking about that hop. I mean, hops are flowers, uh, and so that, that we said, let's find the most flowery flower hop that we could, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, guys, I'm going to ask you a quick question. This whole process you've talked about here, is all this written down on one of your websites somewhere, or is it... Uh, it's on every bottle, Rick. Every bottle, Okay. Right? It's the, 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 yeah, we, the bottles is our, just the, the, the letters back and forth between us. I recommend putting on like your favorite album, sitting down with someone you love, read through it, and then hump. <laughs> 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 thing will do just as well. Oh my God! Get your mic. Jim, I want to uh, thank you for um, first introducing the Triple Bock. I remember back in the mid to late '90s, I was I drank one of your bottles. I worked in a, a beer store that sold Budweiser, Miller, Pabst, and all of a sudden your bottle showed up one night, and. It was a seven ounce, I believe, seven or eight. Yes, yeah, two hundred fifty milliliters. Uh, I drank it almost straight down. Oh, not a good uh, idea. Right. right? Uh, Fifteen minutes later, I was. Really I hope drunk. you called an ambulance first. Right. Yeah. So that was really nice, but thank you for that. Um, but I've, I've been following your beer ever since. I mean, it's been fantastic. You you actually paved the way for everyone. Um, Sam, thank you for going outside the box even a little bit further and then tonight I mean this is really just a thank you to both of you but, but you did a really great job um, bringing this beer to the to the table to the bottle I really appreciate it and I guarantee you from this point on both beers are definitely in my house in the fridge on the table being served with food right, I'll thank drink you. to that thank you All right, we are uh, approaching the 9 o'clock hour, and I know there have been hands up, so let's get uh, at least one more question here. So these special releases and these seasonal beers are a staple of the craft brew industry. 
I was wondering, as your breweries grow, uh, are, there, are there any pressures you feel in terms of your business model to kind of cut back on these types of things? And how do you kind of maintain a focus on these types of releases as you grow and have to worry about your bottom line and things like that? you got to say that again. Could you hear it? It was about, uh, I think it was, uh, as our breweries grow, and we want to be adventurous and do a lot of things, but it, does that become more challenging as you grow, and how do you deal with that? Exactly. Thanks. Uh, Andrew. John. They deal with the challenge. Yeah. Okay, let's give it up for the deal with the yeah. challenge. I mean, it's basically the core of what we do. And a very interesting experience when we were doing our uh, collaboration with Vine Stefan. Um, it's a great brewery, um, and they're very German, so they focus on basically you know, making the same quality more efficiently. And uh, I remember meeting with their brewmaster uh, and trying to explain the American approach that Sam and I take, because um, he was like, well, this is, we were laying out some brewing techniques that we needed to use. He said, oh, you know, it's going to cost all this money. It's going to be really expensive. I don't think we can do that. Uh, and I said, well, um, this is a different way of approaching brewing. Your approach is to make the same quality and to take costs out. Um, and that's why your beer culture is dying. Why Germans are not interested in beer. Because you haven't engaged your drinkers. Uh, I will give you a different approach. Don't think about taking costs out. Think about putting value in, doing cool, interesting, unique things that make great flavors and tastes that your drinkers have never had before. And that's why America has a beer culture today that is the envy of the world. And while everybody thinks German brewers are so great, your culture is dying. And you guys are brain dead. So, uh, look, we're going to make a beer that is going to sell for 15 euros. And he's like, 15 euros? You know, that's a lot for a case of beer. When we sell a case of beer, we get 8, 9 euros for a case. And I said, Frank, I'm talking about 15 euros a bottle. <laughs> and he said, oh, that's impossible. We're impossible. We can't do that. And I said, no, no, no. The job is, uh, you think that you can't sell beer for 15 euros a bottle. The challenge is not trying to sell it. The challenge is, as brewers, we have to make beer that is worth 15 euros a bottle. And if we can make beer that is worth 15 euros a bottle, people will buy it. And, yeah. And that's, that's why today the most exciting place to be a brewer and a beer drinker is in the United States, where 100 years from now, brewers will look back and wish they were making beer in America today. Cheers.
All righty. Well, that is a uh, fitting uh, place, I think, to uh, uh, conclude our presentation tonight. You know, when I first introduced you guys, I felt guilty that I didn't talk more about how innovative and creative you both were, but I think we covered that. This podcast was produced by the Brewers Association and presented by Craft Beer Radio. To find more information on Saver or further podcasts, visit craftbeerradio.com slash saver or craftbeer.com. This content is released under the Creative Commons license. Visit craftbeerradio.com for more information.